Hey y'all, so since we put this together yesterday, there's been some really crazy stuff that's been going on in the world. So before I press the upload button and send it out into the universe, I felt like I'd be remiss if I didn't um, acknowledge the tragedy in uh, Beirut. Uh, we're with you, we're, we're thinking of you. The, the world is nuts right now. Let's do everything we can to live and learn together and um, make this whole place better, all right? I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the long-form classical music podcast, still a little shorter than Mahler 9, so I think we're in safe <laughs> territory. Is that all right, Scott? How, how, what do you think? I think it's safe. I, I mean, mean we, we started with really sticking to an hour, like no longer than an hour, but, you know, these conversations grow and grow, and we're not trying to keep you here all day, but, you know, we, we give this to you once a week so you can split it up throughout the week, and by the time you get done, it's, it's, it's time for a new opus, right? What's your favorite thing to do while you listen to a podcast? You know, um, I like to have an activity. So, like, I save a lot of time-consuming activities for listening, like folding laundry. You know, we, I, I mostly do the um, grocery delivery. But if I do go into the grocery store, I'll, you know, have my ear pods in. Maybe if I uh, know that I have a long walk to take, you know, my car's in the shop right now. So in the morning, I will certainly be <laughs> turning on a podcast to take the long walk with. Uh, but, but, but what about, I mean, you you walk with radar around the lake every day. so that's Yeah, the, the lake is a 5K, so I've got a lot of time to fill up. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, welcome to the new listeners, Opus 60 of the Triloquy Podcast. Welcome and thank you so much to the returning listeners. I want to, for my listener shout out, I want to shout out Eric Jacobs over in Seattle, uh, Seattle Symphony, I believe, uh, uh, bass clarinet, Um, you know, just a a loyal listener, uh, made a made a great contribution at triloquy.org. You can do that, you know, help us, you know, pay for these microphones and all this, all this stuff that uh, I buy and Scott uses. So, (laughs) hey now, hey now, that Ableton stuff does not come cheap. Oh, yeah, that's true that's true um you you got any uh, announcements before we get to movement one uh i just want to make sure that everybody knows that you and i can now be heard on 91.9 classical kc so shout out to kansas city yeah yeah all of our listeners there. they're getting uh, a couple hours of second shift and all of the graveyard so yeah yeah shout out to everybody in kansas city um so this opus um in the third movement uh, features a conversation with the one and only anthony mcgill very excited about that um i'm gonna uh, talk a little bit about a uh, kanye tune that you got a little sample of there um in the cold open there's also you know as always a little uh, uh twitter um drama for us to throw into our accidentals and then um in, in my triloquy for the final movement i'm gonna um give everybody an update on my uh black and jewish relations conversation <laughs> that that exploration there with the uh, josh wallerstein yeah the, the uh, no recordings it was definitely an off the record conversation but i thought i would share um you know what what i took away from it so yeah looking forward and to getting into a lot today he's cool with you sharing that did you i ask definitely him? i definitely asked beforehand right. because i don't want no more drama all, all right. right well if that does it for the announcements let's get into movement one 
Okay, so before we do anything, and Scott, we, we talked about this before, you think it's fine. I need to put a natural next to last week's closer. <laughs> I don't know the woman who you were dealing with, whose music, you know, she was trying to uh, get on the current. I felt a little weird about the manscaping joke as it related to her. So, you know, no no offense, no shade to anybody. I didn't mean anything. So but just there, felt like I needed to say something. There, There was no untrue statements in what you said, though. Oh, so, okay. Anyway, let's let's move on. That's <laughs> you still don't want to talk about it. Okay, okay. Uh, that's good. You, you want to talk about your manscaping. What, 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 I what, am shape, here what today. shape did you make? Down I am there? here today to talk about my accidental. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, this is, uh, I guess, a sharp. And a uh, big shout out to Adrian Dunn, who was um, the interview guest for the first opus of season two um go and check out what he's doing the black music matters rally um this this is an advocacy advocacy group to fight for the rights of black musicians artists educators and other entertainment professionals so basically uh helping uh black business owners get in touch with other black artists and um you and you and i talked a long time ago about the amount of time that money stays in a community yeah so yeah. this is kind of speaking to that isn't it yeah. Try, trying to keep black money in black communities can you expand a little bit on that concept i mean that you yeah brought up? i think the first time we kind of got into it was back in the uh, kwanzaa opus um where we're uh, and i forget you know right off the top of my head which uh, maybe kuji chagulia the you mm. know the guiding principle of you know maintaining community uh, specifically on the fiscal front so you know um the the statistics show that in certain communities certain asian communities certain jewish communities other ethnic um, insular communities uh within the the United States, you know, when a dollar comes into that community, the amount of time that it stays in that community varies based on the community. And unfortunately, with the black community, it's only a matter of hours before we're spending the money that we've earned, you know, outside of our own community. So, you know, what Adrian is doing here, I think, is really phenomenal, especially considering these days when we aren't really spending money in the same way or maybe not as frequently um, as we were pre-COVID, you know, so it's, yeah. it's all that much more important. So to quote Adrian Dunn from this piece that showed up in ChicagoDefender.com, he said, our rally is called the year of Juneteenth because it's about reclaiming the narrative. The black artists, musicians and creatives are the authors of American culture and music. It's about taking our stuff back. Yeah. And it's really interesting that that comes up because that that kind of deals with uh, one of the topics today and, and, a, and a bit of my triloquy. You know, uh, we're, we're going to uh, talk about how at home creatives, you know, are, are really driving things. And, you know, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, our guest today, Anthony McGill, how something he created at home, you know, um, you know, kind of plays into that. Um, but, but but that's coming up in, uh, in in a further movement. But, yeah, again, big shout out to um, Adrian Dunn. I'm, I'm trying to always share um, everything about the um, virtual rallies and, and all of the different initiatives on my social media. So, you know, you can always scroll through uh, my Instagram uh, to, to see all of that sort of thing. And yeah. do, do you have any information on these online rallies, their efficacy? The uh, We were talking a little bit about uh, do you get the same sort of enthusiasm and that uh, that energy that you do with an in-person rally with a, uh, a demonstration where 
you're not socially distanced. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any replacement for that. I mean, I think we were comparing it to the live concert experience, like, you know, seeing a performance on the Internet is going to be different from live in person. But I think it can be equally impactful, but just in a different way. I mean, think about, you know, that one black classical music professional living in, you know, Idaho or Iowa or, you know, or, or even in you know, Minnesota or California, wherever, you know, but but just feeling a little isolated and, you know, these virtual rallies and these virtual conversations, you know, is a, is a way, you know, for that connectivity and just to remind folks that um, you're you're not alone. You know, you're, you're not alone in this. Something mm, that um, so something that I think, um, you know, I was I was uh, I spoke on a panel for the International Double Read Society last week. And um, one of the things that came up was that phrase, you are not alone. And, and I think mm. um, I hadn't really thought about that before, but we need to be saying that more. And I think those virtual rallies, you know, really drive that point that, you know, these, these black professionals um, are not alone. And, um, you know, the desire to, you know, reclaim, you know, as Adrian says, is, is very much there. So shout out to him. Mm. I'll, I'll be sure to repost um, information about what he's doing on uh, in the description of uh, this opus. But anyway, that was uh, that was a story that was speaking to me in this last week so. yeah you know um so one of the one of the things i wanted to jump to um you know before we get into uh return to the conversation of the screen because you know that that that's a thing again but so this morning um so i, I want to shout out once again for a second week in a row rob kamanieski i hope I'm, I'm pronouncing your name right uh, on on twitter you know with, with the with, with the hefty you know uh, uh the twitter classical music stuff you know first thing in the morning so um he tweeted um th- there's a photo of the um the uh gymnopedia one of the gymnopedies, the sheet music by Satie, mm-hmm. you know, this really beautiful um, piece of music, but, um, you know, a pretty simple piece of music. And, and his, um, his sort of caption here says, like, one of the things I often hear about rap is that it isn't music, so-called, because it's too simple. It's just veiled racism to say that incredibly simple pieces by composers like Cage and Satie are taught in serious music schools everywhere. Now, the, the gymnopedies are very important, but, you know, the, the reason that uh, tweet really caught me is because of the point he was making with the John Cage. So John Cage, you know, his most famous piece of so-called music, you know, four minutes and 33 seconds, you know, silence, you know, sort of exploring what are the sounds in that time and letting that be the composition. How we will talk about that in music school before we talk about any piece of hip hop. Now, is that not, you know, have you ever thought about that? Just sort of on a a plain level, silence, getting more (laughs) of respect? (laughs) The actual pieces of music. Well, you know, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask because I haven't heard Cage uh, 433. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about that either? Okay. No. Um, as we discussed earlier tonight, as I was trying to play Rockstar by the Baby, mm-hmm. there is some intricacy to a lot of these tracks. Oh, absolutely. So, um, I would swat that down right away and go, well, you, you know, it, so what if they built it in a piece of software, if it's MIDI or if they go the route that Beyonce does and she puts together an orchestra to have them play it live, yeah. you know, there's intricacy happening and, and it's classically based in and, and let's, music. And, and let's not even pretend that, you know, non-acoustic 
instruments, non-electronic instruments don't have their own, you know, intricacies and complications. I mean, you know, you, we talk about your learning Ableton, you know. Over That's a whole instrument, months, yeah. An yeah. actual instrument that makes all of these sounds that you have to play, you know, the pressure of the touch and, you know. You and know. you can get into the software and tweak things like you wouldn't believe. It's it's mind-boggling the things that it can do. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little bit overkill for a podcast, but, you know, I do that. <laughs> oh, I don't know, but I, I, I think you do good work. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just wanted to um, um, make sure, again, I, I shouted out um, um, Robert. Um, is it right? Yeah, Robert, because, I mean, you he's know, got a good he, feed. He has a great feed, and, and these conversations are, are just so blatant so plain if you think about it but mm. you know be, because of the status quo because of the way things work we've always just kind of looked at it and 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 turned the other way or or just kind of accepted it as the norm yeah um you know and there is actually a bit of um rap i wanted to talk about today i'm going to get into that um in the in the second movement you know yeah, we have to some... bring up we have to bring up kanye every every other opus it seems like there's uh, <laughs> there's some rap conversation that i want to have too so. <laughs> okay yeah but um so but but you know for the past couple of weeks scott we've been talking about um the screen the 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 audition screen and yet another article came out this one was written by the principal cellist of the uh, Louisville Orchestra and you know basically he's talking about why we have to protect this institution of, of, of the screen now, did you check out this article Scott I did and first of all is it Finch was his last yes, name yes yeah he, he's a good writer yeah oh, he's sure. very convincing yeah, yeah. writer a great first cellist off. too as well you know I've subbed with the Louisville Orchestra so right you know it's, it's been great to, to hear him playing live no, what did you? Sorry, um, uh, we were joking. This this podcast always comes after dinner, so I'm just kind of <laughs> always catching my breath here. Uh, what, what were some of your takeaways from you know yet another article, um, really you know trying to protect the institution of this audition screen? Really, the misogyny is what showed up. I'll go into that. The because, misogyny jumped out. Yeah, it did because you know one of the instances that they cite was a woman who was auditioning for. Was it? It was either Munich or yes, Munich Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, Abby Conant mm -hmm. won the position playing trombone, and when the screen came down, some of the men couldn't hack it. You know, they couldn't. They could they not. They couldn't believe. They that could a woman not had believe that they picked that. Yeah, and uh, not no. They they. I, I mean to say, they could not believe that they picked that player. Right. Not right. Right. Yes. That. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and and she still faced loads of issues. Um, you know, trying to get pay. Um, um, they, she was uh, demoted, and you know, she was just trying to uh, get paid for the the job that she won. Yeah. You yeah. know. So, I mean, it, it's. I think that that is the number one thing that jumped out is how it would benefit men you know the the longer don't I you think this, uh, the, the longer i have this conversation about this audition screen and you know yes obviously i am am very much interested in more black people you know make, making it pass and, and getting in these orchestras but you know it's really a shame how misogyny is something that we're still battling in the field you know uh, when you take an audition uh, behind one of these curtains not only is the screen up but um, there is a very specific um, carpet 
on stage so right. that you can't hear if it's you know high heels or or, or whatever i mean it's, it's it's ridiculous that you know that conversation still um has to be had but you know my my part of it is you know with you know considering the misogyny that we're, we're fighting against that the, the screen you know works to fight against in classical music it still has not served black and 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 brown folks the way it has served women at, at least not here in the united states you know or, orchestras are you know largely um uh, gender diverse but the racial diversity is not there and and that's why i can't consider the screen a success you know finch uh one, one of the last sentences um in in the article i believe says you know that the screen is a success that must be built on well the success where as far as i'm concerned you know and then you know on top of all of that there is a photo of a random black cellist who is unnamed you know in in, in the right. article and we and we uh you know saw a whole panel on that when we went to sphinx you know the tokenization of that so you know from from the photo to you know the the lack of of, of accountability for the racial um disparity there i mean he does address that you know the louisville orchestra has only had one black musician in its time mm-hmm. uh, a musician who does not even play in the orchestra you know at that time but I don't know. I, I don't feel like you can, you know, just really um, protect and fight for this institution of the audition screen without addressing, you know, what it hasn't dealt with, which is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the, the lack of racial diversity that we're seeing in orchestras. There was something that he talked about that I've thought of with acting. You know, he, the quote was, it's hard to think that you will be able to live comfortably in a field with so few jobs when you're already scraping to get by. You know, and he was talking about how musicians of color face a different hill to climb, yeah. you know, um, where they're worried about, well, if, what if they get stopped with their violin? Yeah. You know, what's what's going to happen or their flute or cello or whatever it is. Um And another great point that I thought speaks to some of the things that I'm experiencing now, as older orchestra members retire, a process that takes years to unwind, given that many musicians spend entire careers in an orchestra chair after the grueling process to acquire it, we are going to see this diversity increase even further. And I thought, well, that's radio, because we have almost everybody on our staff is decades long careers in that they get there and they park you know and doesn't that happen in orchestras oh yeah many orchestras but i think with our generation i mean i I can't obviously i don't speak for our generation but i remember when i was playing with uh detroit a few months in i was thinking to myself wow would i really want to just 20 30 years down the line still be on this stage doing this job and there's nothing wrong with you know folks who choose to do that but for me, I mean, parking in a place is something I've never had the privilege uh, of doing. First of all, I mean, w- w- my job with the Knoxville Symphony, I played down there five seasons. That was the longest I ever had any job, you know, wow. to date, five whole years because, you know, going to school and then, you know, moving and, and X, Y, and Z. So that's not really something that's um, ingrained in me, getting the job and, and kind of parking. But I, I understand how that's you know, certainly in, in music, you know, when you get that full-time orchestra gig, you know, of, of course you're going to park on it. I mean, I'm parked on my job now till I, you know, yeah, until, by, you, until my numbers hit. Until you let the parking break <laughs> off. Right. So where do you land then? He says that this is something that needs to be built on. Do you have a counter idea that... Yes, and my counter idea is to take down the screen 
And for those orchestras who are interested in diversifying their personnel, hire accordingly. And and I think um, orchestras are capable of doing that, but they won't because um, diversity isn't something that's actually prioritized in the way they say. Now, we can talk about union contracts and, you know, how these different uh, rules work. But at the end of the day, there is a way to deal with that. And orchestras just aren't you know, doing it. And, and the screen hasn't worked up to now, you know, as far as racial diversity. So help me understand what is to be built on that. That's my, that's my thing about it. You know, I read this article in the middle of the night, I think I was on the air one night. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it, it just perturbs me to see, you know, just such strong support for, you know, any part of the big system that just has not proven to, you know, really be equitable as, as on, on the front of race, you know? Okay. But, and Anthony McGill was quoted in the article, and he talked about cronyism, you know, of being able to see, okay, and know that maybe that person worked with somebody who's friendly to the ensemble or... But in what, but consider, and, and everyone's passing around the, the number um, that was taken back in, I, I think, 2014 or 2016, as far as the percentages in orchestra, like 1.8% of um, professional orchestras, um, uh, the personnel represents black folks, something like 2.4 um, uh, Latinx uh, uh, musicians. So is that really something that can apply to us when we're already in such small number, you know? No, I'm... I don't know. I mean, no. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just saying that, that that's just the way I see it. But you know, uh, I, and I actually uh, ask Anthony about, you know, what, what's, what, what would be the problem with just, you know, purposefully and intently um, hiring to make things more diverse. So you'll get the um, answer to that here um, in a bit. But did you have any more? Um, actually, and and by the way, I think I'm putting a flat next to that article. I'll put it um, in the uh, description to this. Listen. Um, we're we're probably done with the screen conversation at this point because you know as it's as it's been said many times you know many of these arguments really only you know entrench people on either side you know more so sure you and, dig in further and, and and there are plenty of good reasons you know as uh, Adedeji said you know what last week um, uh, on on the podcast about you know how he felt validated uh, winning the audition from behind that curtain you know that was something that no one could take from him you know but as Anthony McGill lays out. Um, later in this opus, you know, there is the tenure process, there the, there's the trial. So even winning from behind that curtain, you know, isn't the end of the road. I, I really think it needs to be purposeful, um, equitable hiring, um, despite the fact that nothing like that has been really done. I understand that it's radical, but, you know, we're talking about making big change to, to make things more equitable uh, in this world. So that's that there. Heard. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to put a sharp next to before we get into the second movement. Yes, I um, do know that Black is King is out, um, you know, the, the, the latest uh, Beyonce project. Um, there was also a, a Brandy um, album that came out that I really enjoyed. Um, but I'm going to uh, see if I can't save those for, for next time. So I'll, I'll, I'll let Beyonce and Brandy uh, strike a chord on next week's Opus of Triloquy. But 
um, you know, in, in celebration of who uh, Brandy is. You know, do, do, do you have any relationship with Brandy's music? Did you ever listen to any of it? Or I started singing Tony Braxton when you mentioned Brandy's <laughs> name, so that should tell you. Okay, so you know, it's y- y'all know how much I love Beyonce, but but I, I think it's important to also honor Brandy. So you know, as as a warm up um, to to next week's exploration of Beyonce and Brandy, um, and, and sort of talking about the sort of '90s R&B we're going to get into in the second movement, I thought we trans here with what I consider a brandy um, classic you know um, sitting sitting up in my room you know a, a 90s sort of you know this I have a crush on this person and you know all I could do is sit here and wait for my house phone to ring so you know just sort, sort of <laughs> nostalgic music so we'll listen to a bit of that as we get into movement too. Okay, movement two, time for us to strike a chord. So um, first and foremost, you know, we have to start with a uh, rest in peace to the late uh, Leon Fleischer. Yeah, that he was 92, right? Yeah, I, I believe so. And, and I have to be honest, I, I wasn't very familiar with him or his life or his career. I mean, can you, can you speak to that at all? Focal dystonia, man, will mess you up. Um, so for those who don't know, focal dystonia affects... Uh, fine motor skills and you know one of our former colleagues who was a flute player for years and years it mm-hmm. affected her and you know I'm not sure what Allison is up to these days so shout out to Allison Young yeah, yeah. Um, and it hit him in the hands at least the right one anyway and he chalked it up to you know eight hours a day of hard work and he for a long time see this is I, w- I probably would have succumbed to depression and thrown in the towel and found, you know started you know doing something else um but he instead started focusing on compositions all for the left hand mm. and did a and then i really love that he just really invested himself in teaching for a while so he's you know there's going to be some leon fleischer disciples that are coming up that you'll be hearing really soon i'm sure and he was able to uh, get back into playing form with the right hand, though. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, what a wonderful thing to be able to play two-handed pieces before you eventually pass away. Rest in peace, Leon. You know, you talk about all of these uh, Fleischer students who are who are passing along his legacy. You know, one of the um, uh, really incredible things about you know the 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 art of recording, you know, is that you know your your legacy is left behind in that way. So uh, when I heard the news, the first thing I did was you know go through the Spotify lists and see all of his um, recordings, and you know I see a lot of Brahms, a lot of you know Schubert and Schumann. You know I, I pass all of that by because I'm I'm trying to you know <laughs> get into something new. Right. And, and and I managed to and I passed along to you. I managed to find this album where he's playing a piece of music by uh, uh, Benjamin Britten called Diversions, and I actually had not heard of this piece of music. Did you know it? No, last night while I was brewing was the first time that yeah. I had heard it too, and 
I loved it. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's this sort of piece of music. And, and, and for folks who don't know uh, who the English composer Benjamin Britten was, I would say his most famous piece of music is the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. Sure. You know, this piece of music for, you know, for, for children. Sort of the 1930s, I forget the date, but 1930s, 1940s, Fantasia, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even uh, before that. But, you know, this piece of music called Diversions for Piano and Orchestra um, just showed the many uh, moods and, and, the, and the attitude that a piece a, a, a piano soloist can have and and in the recordings Leon Fleischer really um, you know did just that you know just really as I listen you know we were talking about a couple of the movements earlier the burlesque movement how he really it really sounds like he's hitting those keys you know he's you know putting everything he's got into it but there's control Though, at the same time, you know, right? It's it's not just bashing on it. There's the the notes are closed. They strike and then and then they're silenced. You know, there's there's very, definitely masterful technique. But my my favorite movement was the tarantella, though. Yeah. That was I just like a good tarantella. Yeah. How about we listen to a little of that tarantella? Let's do it. So yes, rest in peace to uh, Leon Fleischer. I will, um, I will uh, make sure I put this piece of music, um, this performance featuring him on uh, the piano, Diversions by Benjamin Britten, onto the Triloquy Tracks playlist on Spotify. So be sure to um, check that out and check out all the other pieces of music that we've uh, been putting there. I was going to say that the, the Latterman uh, piano concerto that's on that same recording as the Britten Diversions is not bad either. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put all of that on uh, onto the playlist. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, as we we continue to, uh, you know, take a look at the music that uh, struck a chord with us this week. You brought in something um, by uh, De Fille. De Fille. To talk a little Fille. bit more about uh, about this music. Okay, so... Well, how'd you come up on it, first of all? It was one of those things that I stumbled upon listening to Spotify before I was paying for it. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have a whole lot of control over where it went. So I just let it ride a lot of times when I was doing chores or whatever. And uh, Katie and Delaney over at Classically Black Podcast are probably going to think that I just listened to nothing but impressionistic <laughs> music that just shared up for two chairs that, <laughs> that happens to you, you know. But um, there's a track that I want to focus in on that's called "Oh How We Laughed," and it's sort of chamber-esque, sort of string sounds intermixed with crowd response and there's for me i really like uh music that that catches me off guard that's surprising and it's their their music to me reminds me of if you were walking past storefronts and each if each storefront that you looked into had its own different movie soundtrack playing to an event and you get to go in and and just be a part of that soundscape for a little bit now, see, that's interesting because when you uh, played the track, for me, what I kind of thought about was, um, you know, walking out in this cold, desolate world all by yourself, and you're passing by these parties or these different places where people are having fun, but, you know, you can't go in. You have to only pass by, you know? Okay, so let me ask you, why do you feel that you have to pass by? I guess because I am not someone to... 
walk into strange homes where, <laughs> where where people are laughing and having a good time. But, I don't know. But you're not. But you know, you're just sort of getting a little slice of what their night is like. It's not like you're being excluded. I suppose that's not. But I'm not going to go in and fix myself a drink and make a plate and sit down at the table. Why don't you try it? Well, but because I'm black in America, and you know. Folks have guns. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> All right. But, but, but you know, a, a, a very cool piece of music to sort of inspire a, a little bit of conversation. What's it called again? It's called Oh How We Laughed. How we laughed, you know. A lot of folks were laughing at, um, you know, Kanye West's last uh, sort of press conference and his his fall from uh, presidential hopes. But oh, is he already out? I, that's what I understood. That's what I understood. But huh. um, but over uh, this past weekend, he actually put out a little music uh, with uh, with rapper uh, Travis Scott. And just out of curiosity, I took a listen to it, and I instantly was was drawn in. I, I knew I had to come in to, to talk about it a, a little bit um, uh, in the second movement of this opus. So you know, as we talk about Scott, you know, this sort of awakening uh, across the field, and, and and us having these different uh, conversations on racial equity. A lot of that is showing up in music. Um, as far as going back to Africa and sort of engaging those African aesthetics, those those African um, sounds, something that uh, Beyonce did in Black is King that, you know, that we'll jump into uh, more next time. But um, so so when you listen to this um, song by uh, Kanye, it's called wash us in the blood it's called wash us in the blood so you know kanye you know is still on his religious thing so you know you know praise jesus and all of that but if you listen to the music and how he you know invokes those religious phrases wash us in the blood it just has this sort of you know dare i say cultish sound to it that's just sort Mm -hmm. of evil and and mysterious and then um some of the actual lyrics you know getting back to what i was talking about uh in the first movement where folks are you know kind of sleeping on rap because they think it doesn't have those complexities and and x y and z you know some of the things he's talking about um you know beyond you know the conversation of matching the african aesthetics with the uh christian writings but you know kanye talks about um how you know folks um it even inspired the the title of uh, of this opus you know how they don't want kanye they want calm yay they want you know the the person who they excuse me who, who they can control and who they can you know have have their words you know exactly how they want them you know he talks about how you know they whoever they is want to cut cut the interviews cut uh, things down to interludes you know just get things down to these small little bite-sized bits that don't really have much substance to them and I know that um, you know, that's something that I have, you know, struggled with in the past. You know, folks wanted to cut things short. I kind of ingest at the beginning of this opus, talk about how long we've been getting. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, to talk, talk, talk to me about just that much, you know, because I think that's what struck me so much about this uh, Kanye tune. You know, just this idea that even Kanye West is feeling like he's trying to be edited or he's under these sets of rules. I mean, in, in the you're not a rapper, obviously, thankfully, maybe. But um, <laughs> uh, in, 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 in your work, you know, do you ever feel like, you know, you have to stay inside the lines more than you, oh, you want to? Oh, grief, man. I'm telling you. 30 years in public broadcasting, right? And I and I was raised up on 
Sesame Street, The Electric Company, 321 Contact, all that, right? So all of these shows were about deep dives into things. You know, there was um, long camera shots. We were listening to some music from the 80s and 90s that was, you know, five-minute radio tracks, you know, and that doesn't happen anymore. And there's even a radio station out there that is trying to play excerpts like a minute and a half like your favorite bits of a song and then you're on to the next one i mean and and songs are already so much shorter than they used to right i I used to think of a song as being about five minutes long and and these days it's kind of like two and a half right so i'm exactly three and a half is like the the top and then they start doing like a uh a studio fade sure sure which i hate right pop music oh my gosh maybe (laughs) you know that already but you see i'm all about the 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 long form everything yeah and so getting things down to well like my program hop notes I've, i saw that as a half hour yeah and i had to fight to get 10 minutes yeah yeah so um if you if you do you know the film the player maybe not no no okay the, my head. there's a film called uh, the player that is uh, it's a bunch of cameos i mean everybody famous is in it and in the opening segment two of the characters are bemoaning this very thing they're talking about look at this mtv the videos everything's cut 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 Mm -hmm. you know and what you realize as this is going on and as he's talking about how everything has gone short it's one piece of film that goes on for like three and a half minutes without a cut so it's a commentary on the problem as they're setting up the film so go check out the opening scene from the player um, yeah, I'm no, I'm I'm with you. I, I really think that we should allow ourselves enough room, uh, as much room as a project takes. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Now, um, you know, and, and obviously, so how does this apply to you know the work of equity and music and classical music and, and whatever? You know, I think you know the the conceptual idea of this calm, yay, you know, code switching, and mm-hmm. you know, folks wanting you to you know be X, Y, and Z. That's a conversation we've had here a lot. But you know, something else I've been thinking about is. Um, time as capital so everybody has the same you know 24 hours a day how many every hours in a week you know uh, whatever and we have all of these folks you know vying for that limited that very finite thing which is is uh people's time so you know it 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 gets down to you know what i feel like kanye is talking about you know cutting things down and and making things short making these things um bite size you know I, i can understand how it's easier for someone to sort of consume something that's on the shorter side. But I don't know. I I feel like um, that sort of attitude contributes to why we are where we are right now, how we kind of, you know, don't communicate. All of our discourse happens in 150 characters or less, and we don't have time to really contextualize anything. So, you know, I am. Yeah, I, I I think that was something interesting for me to think about. That that piece of music struck a chord um, with me. So I'll, I'll, I'll again, like like everything else, it will be going on the um, on the Trilogy Tracks playlist. I really encourage you to uh, take a listen to it, read the lyrics. You know, kind of see if that speaks to you. A lot of people complain about not being able to understand the lyrics. Oh, you're talking so, about me now, or or anybody else. So you know, <laughs> no, you're talking about me. <laughs> so so go check out the lyrics to um, Wash Us in the Blood. 
Hollywood and just consider this, you know, accept this as this piece of art, this piece of music that, you know, speaks to different cultures, has different messages, is very ambiguous, nothing, you know, just face value and, and, and see if there's something in it that you can um, appreciate. They want me to calm down. They don't want me to Kanye. They don't want Kanye to be Kanye. They want to sign a fake Kanye. They trying to sign a Kanye. That's right, I call him Kanye. But don't take me the wrong way. But don't take me the wrong way. Cause God took me a long way. They want to edit the interviews. They want to take it to interludes. Cut a whole sentence to interludes. While we're on the subject of lyrics, okay. can I jump in? Sure. Okay, so ever since I started trying to learn Rockstar on by DeBaby yep. on guitar, I've by, been li- by composer DeBaby. I've been <laughs> I've been listening, right? Yeah. And I feel the beat, you know, just like uh, from Speaker Geeker's podcast when Steve and, and Tommy were talking about it's the beat first and yep. and I get that. I'm feeling it. And then the guitar is something that I'm familiar with and that little woo. So I'm feeling it, right? <laughs> the what now? <laughs> I don't know if I hit the right notes or not, but man, that N-word. I mean, I just, and well, you I, can I was, download the clean version, right? I was, well, not on, I was just listening okay, to Spotify, yeah. right? And listen to that in the car and I get to a stop sign and I'm not really paying attention like who's around and like here's moms with carriages going by you know and I've got the n-word bumping out of my and radar's cute face too so I'm getting lots of looks for different reasons you know but they're looking and so I, that that is what do I do? Truth what? is, truth is, they'd be looking if it weren't for the N word. They be they be hearing that N word music coming out of your car and 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 looking for that reason. I mean, and, and maybe I'm I'm making generalizations. I think assuming, you do. But I think you but, do. But but that is you can't deny that that is a reality. Uh, the, it, it is. But also on the east side, the reality is that there are loads of people who are listening to just hip hop that are white, and. There are some who would you would find with a Confederate flag in their window too, listening to rap and hip hop. Well, we know how you know proximity does not um, absolve someone from racism because you know those slave masters were raping the slaves and doing everything else too, weren't they? And and that doesn't make them not racist. So you know just because no, you I enjoy didn't the mean music, to say that. you know. No, no, I, I, I know, was, I know, I get you. I was talking about the the paradox. No, no, no. That's what that's what I'm speaking to. You know, you 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 see that and hear that, and 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 speaks to that historical narrative. Um, you know, they they love the food. You know, they love the way um, we play sports. You know, they love our music, but they don't love us. So um, that's the thing. But of, gotcha. but of course, you know, that's not you know why you were listening. You were trying to be enriched by this piece of music and trying to have a uh, a closer relationship with it, specifically how and, to play this guitar lick. <laughs> and, exactly. And frankly, while I was listening to. To it, I felt like I was current for a change, yeah. rather than a few years behind the ball. And and I think you know one of the other things that speaks to is how you know hip hop and other genres can be uh, really impactful in music education. So you know you're still working on that little guitar lick. Imagine if that is just one of the etudes, you know, in this guitar book, and then you do it in um, different keys, you know, not just the that only key. Mm. And and that way, you know, um, it, it's also you know uh, you know you talk about being current. So you know when that guitar student goes home, you know he can play something by the baby you know for his homies to listen to or you know to impress his friends instead of and go then tell maybe, aunt Rody. and then maybe he wouldn't get beat up on for playing 
Right. A, a gymnopédie. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and to quickly go back to that again, you know, the gymnopédie, you know, uh, Eric Satie, you know, beautiful music, you know, um, even uh, The Cage, 433, is, a, is something that I think is worth some conversation. But we can't, you know, press uh, uh, scoop rap and hip-hop and all that to the side, you know, thinking that it's, simp- that it's simple when it obviously has complexities mm-hmm. that can translate to, you know, instrumental performance and, and so-called classical performance performance so um how long before we get to hear this uh here here, here you play the your baby excerpts guitar <laughs> excerpts well, you're coming in on bassoon right i'm not going to be out there on my own right all right well as, as soon as you're ready i'm ready right on okay how you you want to you you want to remind the folks for a second uh week in a row how how that song go <laughs> I'm feeling a spotlight. Ooh. <laughs> here's, here's, here, here's, here's a revisit to Rockstar by the baby. Okay, and, and it's interesting, you know, how. Was I close? I, I I think you were in there. I think you were in the ballpark. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's something talking about guitar playing. You know, the, the final um, uh, thing that struck a chord with me that I want to bring up. So, you know, I, I was I, I just kind of let my YouTube roll sometimes, you know, and um, this uh, trio that it looks like siblings to me that I found out were actually Australian. Um, you can find them on YouTube uh, under the name Celestial. And they uh, really get into all of those um, old school, um, you know, maybe not. Not that old school, but late 80s, early 90s hip hop and soul. Um, the guy plays the guitar really well with the two women uh, singing along. And, um, you know, uh, uh, earlier today I posted a piano and bassoon of Tevin Campbell's Can We Talk, you know, inspired by their rendition. But um, w- one of my other favorite uh, uh, things that I heard them sing this week, and again, they're celestial. I'll, I'll put a link in the uh, description to this, was um, SWV's Week. And, and yeah. I'm sure you have a, a, you know, you have a relationship with SWV's music, of right? Of course. Well, yeah. Well, all those all those wedding receptions and high school parties that I was a mobile DJ for. It was on the radio all the time. Yeah. Well, I love SWV. One of the things we were uh, talking about uh, with with that, um, you know, early 90s hip hop and R&B, that lovey-dovey music is, yeah. you know, you stay at home by that by that phone um, drilled to the wall. I was going to say, let's <laughs> let's emphasize that this was bolted to the wall and yeah. it had a cord maybe six or eight feet. So the conversation you were having, you were having right there in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether your mom and dad were there or not. And there was right. only so far you could go. Right, to right. To get away. And, you know, when, when I hear SWV's music, you know, can't explain why you love, it makes me weak, you know, just that, that feeling of butterflies and, you know, new love and mm. uh, all, all, you know, uh, it seems like a bit of that, you know, seemed to have just gone away with, you know, cell phones and, and it was y'all's beepers first, right? Mm. <laughs> We're too accessible. Yeah. We're too accessible. Yeah. And that's one of the things my therapist talks about is, you know, um, creating barriers and not being afraid to not always be accessible. And, and you know, when it comes to work and all the and, and self-care, but, you know, when, when it comes to, you know, love and, and romance, a, a lot of that is 
you know, gone, but we have the music to re- remember those days. And, and I'm sure, you know, SWV's week will, you know, he'll, he'll help you jog up a, a few memories. And, you know, um, one of my other big points about it was that, you know, this at-home performance, you know, there aren't lights, there aren't dancers, there aren't cameras. It's three folks sitting on a couch, probably with their cell phone, creating beautiful music and helping us, you know, remember, you know, the moments, you know, connected to those pieces of music. And it's something that um, our guest this week, Anthony McGill, you know, did in um, his own way with his Take Two Knees. So we're going to talk about that. Um, I think we get into the conversation. I asked him about, you know, his his uh, biggest fantasy, you know, if, if, if there was something he had to do outside of being principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic, you know, what would it be? So I think that's where we jump in. But um, as we transition here, I thought that we should listen to a bit of um, uh, a Celestial's rendition of Week by SWV. Just so beautiful. If you don't know this song, I'll put the original in the Triloquy Tracks um, uh, Spotify playlist. But um, again, shout out to Celestial and thank you for um, from all the way down under um, <laughs> appreciating the work of, of black musicians, specifically black women uh, musicians. This is their um, uh, rendition of Week as we um, move into Movement 3 featuring Anthony McGill. Yeah, well, you know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be like, um, I wanted to be like a businessman, I called it. So the the lawyer, you know, uh, you know, just business financial person, like just an entrepreneur, just that sort of thing. I went to, you know, I went to Catholic school for a couple of years and I had the blue, light blue shirt and the blue Mm -hmm. pants. And I would wear my shirt buttoned up to the top. So (laughs) that's the kind of to paint that picture of who I was as a little kid. That's what I wanted to do. So I could imagine myself doing something in that sphere, like just, um, you know, kind of like uh, dressed up in a suit and tie less every day. That's why I like I like going to work and on those Friday matinee concerts where you wear a suit, you know, because okay. I, I just feel like an adult that way. But I think <laughs> no. But besides outside of work. Yeah, I just like enjoying myself. So, you know, I can do that very well. I don't need a clarinet. In, in my hands in order to enjoy myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. As, as, as this period 
has taught me. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and one of the things that, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, in this opus of Triloquy is how so many people have become at home creators, you know, how we right. all have a new relationship with Zoom and our cell phones and, and, and whatever. And, you know, the, the, the way, you know, that applies to you has has proven to really, you know, take off in a big way with the uh, take two knees. But uh, before we get into uh, any of that, you know, one of the other things that Scott and I um, are talking about in this opus of Triloquy is, you know, the conversation surrounding the audition screen, you know, that Right. That whole conversation has, has blown up in a big way. Um, you know, I, I, I will recognize that I have sort of an outlier opinion that, you know, if these orchestras want their uh, members, want the stage to look a bit more colorful, why don't we take down the curtain and have orchestras intentionally hire black musicians and musicians of color? I mean, do you think that's something that's possible? Well, what, what is the problem with that sort of direct um, way of dealing with the issue? Right. I actually, and I've seen you say that online too, and I have close friends that are on different different sides. I won't say both sides because there are actually many other yeah. other angles to this. Um, but you know, I think that that what you're talking about actually gets to the heart of the discussion, which I which is why I I'm not one to say I disagree with that actually that concept because I I think I think people just need to start thinking about what to do. You know, and I think that's the most important thing instead of thinking that the status quo is totally OK. So when when that particular article came out and I saw it and I was talking to Tony Tomasini about it beforehand and, you know, he just asked my opinion about one little aspect of it. But I was like, people think different things. But I also agree with you in the fact that. I think that if we're talking about making the changes on stage in a very quick manner, in the fastest manner possible, mm -hmm. right? Then that would be the decision. I tell people this all the time, as far as um, diversifying um, boards and finding finding people for their boards. I say it's impossible. Well, it's not really. You know, right. I mean, first you have to get to that point where it's, do you do you want people um, first of all to be on your stage? Do you want people to be in your boardroom with you? that happen to look away. And if the answer is yes, then all things are on the table in my mind. All possibilities, all ranges of, of adjustments to the current system are, should be on the table for discussion without completely uh, disregarding the concept. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Is, is that, is that that's, that's, that's definitely one way to do it, you know, to have yeah. it be done. Except the other concern is that people feel like, oh, well, are you going to hire just one person? Are you going to hire 10? You know, and so that's the, that's on the argument that I've heard recently, too, from friends is that, you know, that's great. An orchestra wants to hire hire me. But if you place one person on stage, that doesn't that does not create a solution that can also create multiple problems. Right. <laughs> you right. know, right. Right. <laughs> like if, if I were on that stage as the only black person in my orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, and I was placed there, you know, with without any kind of structure of an audition mm -hmm. like we have it, then first of all, there would be a lot of resentment. You know, there would be a lot of um, undue pressure on myself. Um, as you already suffer from, I, every, lots of people suffer from imposter syndrome. And anyway, I could imagine that yeah. the levels of that could be greater, you yeah. know? Um, but we can, we can talk more about it. Cause I, I'm, I'm definitely one for like, 
opening up the system and seeing what is there to see what can be better. So, I mean, but, uh, but surely not Anthony McGill is someone with imposter syndrome or has, or has felt that in the past, right? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm above that. I'm above any, no insecurities here. You know, it's like, yeah. I've, you, been, re yeah. I've, I've been reading some other pieces about you and, and you said that you say that in the mirror every day, even now, that you're good enough that you can do this. Yeah, I, I was talking specifically about that when I was um, my first year in the Philharmonic, especially, yeah. and probably my first year in the Met and maybe before that, but especially at the Philharmonic, that was the time where that that type of pressure, that type of situation was greater than any that I'd felt in my life and career before that. So yeah, for sure, I had to, I have to battle the same kind of inner voices um, or the negative voices that like most people have Mm -hmm. And I, but, but I acknowledge them so I can make sure that they don't get in the way of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, you, you frame the conversation around uh, the audition uh, with being multi, you know, with multi sides of the, of the conversation. And, you know, as we both know, you know, the screen is just one part of it. You know, it's one thing to be, you know, on the auditioning side, but on the panel side of the screen, you know, there's, there's the issue of fatigue. I, I remember the last time I sat on an audition panel, um, it was actually for a clarinet audition, you know, 250 applicants and, you know, around applicants 75, you know, you, you know, uh, daftness starts to sort of blur together from from musician to musician, you know, um, the screen aside, you know, I wonder um, from your perspective, what are other parts of the audition process that really need a, a little bit uh, of updating? Right. So, um, for instance, I my, my thoughts on this have have run the gamut. But of course, I came through the audition process at the Met. And I think that's a in a way it's a very it has been very successful. But in a way, also for what we're talking about, it hasn't necessarily opened the floodgates for all types of diversity, which is right. what the dream is, right? The ideal. So for one of our auditions I ran this year, I actually requested that the screen be up for the entire time um, for lots of different reasons, for um, even personal reasons and political reasons within the orchestra, because I had friends and colleagues auditioning. And mm -hmm. that's the one of the things sure. that comes up a lot you know, is that I didn't want there to be any kind of thoughts on either side about um, influence, you know, or bias towards towards one person from either um, my friends who didn't get that job or from others who may have thought if that I gave the job to one of my friends audition, you know what right, I'm saying? Right. So it protects it protects people in that way if you have the screen the whole way. But then beyond that process, there are two years two whole years and sometimes just a week or two of trials where all kinds of bias can come into play right. when you're when you sit in that orchestra and so the experiences that musicians have once those screens come down let's say we all orchestras all collectively decide let's leave the screens up totally but then have and keep the rest of the process the same i think that what you're doing is you're 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 allowing um biases to come into play there because all of this, a lot of this bias is unconscious anyway, right? right. So most people in orchestras don't even know they have bias. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But but so. you but you're touch when you when you mentioned the trial, you're really touching on one of my other, you know, frustrations that, that I felt in the field. You know, I will sit there and, and listen again to all of these clarinet players. And then, you know, at the end of, of uh, their second, you know, season, uh, they, they don't get tenure. So, you know, what what was what was all that work for? What was all of their work for? Right. Right. I, I agree with you. And I think that, for instance, 
when you have a situation where nowadays a lot of the things that happen um, is that after after a, a couple screened rounds and maybe an unscreened round, you can sit in the orchestra for a week or so, right? Yeah. yeah. And and then from that moment on, you that that person can also just say, you know, they say, okay, you're out of the door. And then in my mind, I was like, um, wait a second, but that person won that audition that we spent all those hours for. And so this isn't necessarily the best policy, right? Yeah. So you give somebody a chance. The other thing to realize, and I know this about myself, the player that I am three years into an audition or three years into a 10-year process or two years is not the same player that I was when I came in to that audition. Right. And um, if, if that's the case, I mean, just imagine how many people that the first round or the first rounds they have behind screens is not the player that they are, um, you know, on a daily basis mm-hmm. as far as performance. So that's taking the other side of of that issue. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's so much more than just who's on the stage, but also what is being played. And uh, uh, maybe a, a month ago back or, or so, Scott sort of threw down the gauntlet. You know, these orchestras talk about, you know, diversifying programming. Why not do a whole season? Why not when we can finally come back? Why not do a whole season of black composers or diverse composers? I mm-hmm. mean, what, what do you think are the implications behind setting Brahms and Beethoven on, on the shelf for, you know, for seven months? Yeah, I think... Um the implications are that there would be a firestorm of controversy. <laughs> <laughs> so having said that, right. I see no, see, people, I think, um, mistake what, what we're trying to do or what people are trying to do with exclusion. Right. Okay. And I had a discussion recently with Michael Stern about this. It's like those that, those people that would say, but we, we need Brahms and Beethoven and you're going to exclude all of those, the great, you know, works of art for these other people. It's like, no, no, no. That's the assumption that is actually usually made. It's like, and um, it's this or that instead of this and, and that, which can actually, it doesn't even need this, <laughs> right. that it can just be that like you suggest. But, uh, and that's for, of course, the artistic um, leadership of these orchestras. But so often it's it's not um, this and that or this or that. It's just only this, (laughs) only the classics. And we throw in a little bit of a tiny little bit of um, seasoning. Yeah. (laughs) And instead of actually creating um, um, some sort of um, tasty dish, I don't know why I'm on this analogy. I guess I've been cooking a lot like a lot of other people, like some sort of tasty, um, healthy, wonderful dish with all kinds of flavors that you couldn't have imagined would a lot. Some people wouldn't imagine would have tasted amazing. And then you try it and it's like, this is how it should have been all along. And it was not that easy to change. I mean, not that difficult to change. That's what I mean. Right. You know, because that's the problem. People think, well, that seems that's, there's so many, uh, whenever you start hesitating in that way about, ideas in general, I feel like you've already made a decision. And and about all these things we're talking about, even people have already made their minds up about them. But I think to properly change the recipe for success, it has to, you have to be open to trying and tasting what that, what that will look like. Oh yeah. And I yeah. think, I think it'll be much more successful, frankly. 
I think yeah. the whole business, the whole industry would be much more um, palatable. You talked about um, in your uh, in your feature for uh, NPR, you know, you talked about uh, folks protesting in their own way, you know, and how that hasn't always been allowed. We're, we're seeing more, you know, diverse ways to, to protest um, these days. You know, when I read uh, those words from you, my mind instantly went to the um, the situation with the St. Louis Symphony some years back when Black Lives Matter protesters, you know, interrupted the concert and, and held a protest inside of the hall. Um, you know, something that I was never able to shake back when I was on stage in, a, in an official capacity was, what if that happens here, A, and what will be my responsibility as the only black person up here on this stage? Is that is, is that mm-hmm. something that you've ever thought about? I have thought about it. I thought about it. Um, I thought about it a ton. And actually, after I, after I did this Take Two Knees thing, I started thinking about that as well. I was like, are people going to expect me not to stand when we do the national anthem? Are people right. going to expect me to actually take two days in front of the concerts? And I was like, actually, that's part of the reason. Uh, that's part of the reason I think it was really important for me, just as a person who has been in this industry where I, I have felt like I, I can't always, um, always intensely express exactly how I feel about everything, you know, because the world we live in in general is a very, um, a political world where your voice needs to be kind of, of course, assimilated and, and quiet and calm and all of these things, mm-hmm. right? Just, just in general that I, I was imagining that what would happen. And I think I was like, are people going to expect me to do this at every single concert that I play? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I just want everyone to know that, no, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not going to do that, but I, that's why I'm talking about finding, finding a way that feels right for you to actually to actually do something to actually express within your life and what you can do what you feel like you should do to express your beliefs about things and that that's okay i think that's okay for me yeah and and, and let's get into you know that the way that you you know offered uh, that 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 sense of protest you know um being being black you know um the the fact of of uh, police brutality is not new, you know, for you. It's not new for me. Um, but what was it about um, the George Floyd situation that really um, inspired you to to take this, you know, this outward stance? Because you know, as 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 you've laid out, you know, you're being the the principal clarinet of this orchestra that's sort of ubiquitous with classical music. You know, in in anything you say is is going to go a long way. You know, so it it had to have been something that you thought about uh, in, intently. You know, what what was it about that situation that sort of you you know, lit that fire. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been tw- 20, 25 years, uh, 20 years as a professional in this business. And, you know, there have been plenty when I started off, you know, in Cincinnati, there were, there were protests and riots and anger and, and whenever every city I've lived in, I grew up in Chicago too. And I know the mm-hmm. history of all these things. Um, you know, I've always felt and thought things and talked to my friends and my colleagues about all the issues going on, you know, within, you know, privately or, or what, what have you. And no one has in interviews or whatever, ever asked me about any of these things, you know, as they were happening. Right. And the industry wasn't, didn't necessarily like prop up and say, Oh, we believe in these things. And then I'm going to speak up about it. And in this particular time, you know, we're playing, I'm talking about how how busy one's people's lives are, right? Um, that what I've realized in this period is that um, often in our lives we get so wrapped up in our in our day to day, 
we get wrapped up in in trying to get to the place where we want to go, right? Trying for ver- for various reasons to represent, you know, our our families well, to represent our teachers well, and our, all of this whole thing, the whole system of of um, kind of the pursuit of success yeah. in America or the world, right? And because of that, you spend your time with a, in a way, it's it ha, in a, it almost has to be in a myopic view of what you're focused on in order to get to that level. As far as like the hours, the focus, the dedication to that specific thing. Mm-hmm. Not that you ignore racism or that you ignore um, oppression or that you ignore people and suffering and all of these things as humans that are going on in the world. But... In this time, when there's no possible way, and this is what struck me about Colin Kaepernick during this time in particular. Oh, sure. When there's no possible for, for way for us as a culture to ignore, as an, and as an individuals to ignore all the problems in the world, it, I woke up one morning and I couldn't pretend to ignore it either and, and, and anymore. And... And so I needed to say more than just to my friends and my family and my community and my community of supporters about it. But I wanted to speak to the, our greater responsibility to be able to um, say something and maybe make some bit of change. And I've never, you, I've never felt that as my direct responsibility to do so. But in this moment, I had to, for my, for really for my personal um, cathartic way of dealing with the pain of what was happening, um, just health-wise in the world, racially, um, socially, mentally, everything. And it came out in this way. Um, and I'll tell you something else. Not many people know this, that just... Um, two months before, at the beginning of the of the COVID crisis, mm-hmm. I, re- I read Henry Tim's book called New Power. And it talked about how movements are started and how power is divvied up in the world in our new kind of way of society, which is mainly social media and online. And in this book, he talks, they talk specifically, his co-writer, they talk specifically about the Black Lives Matter movement. And and why that became such um, such a large movement in the world in today's society, which in 10, 10 years ago, fifteen years ago, it maybe wouldn't have been able to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it actually it resonated with me, like my, about the possibility of me having an ability to affect affect some sort of um, awareness or put a spotlight where I wanted it to go to bring people together to be able to do that about something that I was feeling and I was hoping that a lot of us were feeling. You know, Garrett and I talk a lot about this sort of thing on the podcast, and I was really encouraged to hear you talk about the different ways that people can protest because, um, you know, sometimes I might feel like I'm not doing enough, but it would be inauthentic for me to push into that area. So I was really encouraged to hear you say that. And your means of protest with Take Two Knees resonated with me, number one, because of the musicianship. 
I mean, the way you entered into, it, it was almost like you were just slowly turning up the volume on the clarinet. You entered into that note so smoothly. So immediately I'm listening because I, I've never heard anything like that before. That was amazing first. Um, and then as, as you took it minor into that darker tone, I heard that protest loud and clear there. That really spoke to me. And I start thinking about 50 years ago, Jimi Hendrix playing at Woodstock, uh, you know, the Star Spangled Banner. And uh, there's one part in particular that he bends the note all distorted and everything. And, and he got a lot of blowback, like for being accused of being unpatriotic. And I'm wondering if that's happening for you. You talk about some of the positive feedback that you're getting. Have you encountered that? Are people uh, uh, responding negatively? That's like they, a, did, that's, to, like, like they yeah. did to Hendrix. That's a great question. Um, and just to mention what you, something that you said kind of hit a, a, a chord with me. Um, I feel like I'm not doing enough. Mm. I think I've always felt like that as a black man in this country. And so part of what kind of inspired this was that um, it was this, I woke, literally woke up my morning, this, this morning, I didn't think very much about it. I just started writing. Uh, the writing part, I didn't even think I was gonna use my clarinet. I was not gonna play. Right. And I, was, I wanted to write down my thoughts about it because um, that's why it was really important. As far as blowback, I have not seen so much of that there are a couple couple trolls on the internet like a couple little things written that just kind of like i kind of expected that sure um but you know i actually talked to my parents before i released this statement and you know my parents grew up in a different time and at first they were like you know we just you be careful mm -hmm. you know and and i knew why they were saying that why you should be careful when you get pulled over by the cops, you know, why you should right. be careful in all these other situations. And then they look, they read it again and we talked about it. And I was like, look, this is the, this is the time because um, there is no other time, you know, and in our community as well of musicians, so many of us are, are speaking up so many people, you know, Garrett, I've seen some, I've seen all of your posts and you're like, look, I was speaking up about this years before. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and a lot of us <laughs> were saying, we agree with you like years before, but yeah. was it loud enough for everyone to hear? You know, my, you know, did you know that I resonated what you were saying or anybody else's resonate? We don't really know sometimes. Yeah. And, and so this was, the, this, was, this was a chance for that, but that didn't really concern me so much, any kind of blowback, because there, there are heroes in the world. And if I, if I could, and if I was doing enough, we would all just quit what we were doing instrument-wise and career-wise, and we would just go out there and try to fight for justice for everybody. And there are people that do that full-time, and they yeah. probably feel like they can't do enough. you know. <laughs> but I, as I say again and again, humbly, I am... I am a clarinet player. That is my, right. I, my main, that's what I do. You know, yeah. I'm not trying to get away from that, you know, but this is, this was a personal, this was a very personal um, pursuit for me. It's interesting that um, 
Scott brought up that, you know, that entrance from nothing, because, you know, as I listened, you know, I, I was kind of thinking, you see, now this is how clarinet players give bassoon players like us such a hard time on stage. But <laughs> we, we can't quite match that. You know, that, <laughs> that was my first time, but, but it definitely was, uh, yeah. you know, just excellently ex- executed. But, you know, the yeah. other thing, um, and, and maybe this is a little strange, the other thing that I thought about um, when you took America the Beautiful into that minor, you know, you don't have to really understand music theory to hear hear what you were trying to say, you know, by switching over to minor. You, you don't even have to really have that vocabulary to, to understand that. I wonder how um, that idea um, can expand on a more broad sense. You know, we, we talk about um, engaging communities and, and being more relevant. What do you think, um, or what do you, what do you think are the sounds that orchestras need to be providing from the stage, uh, digitally, uh, whatever, that folks can really speak to in the way that this, um, this uh, music that you did for the take two knees really spoke to folks i think there there is a the the current way and the way that we've kind of programmed and i've never been you know behind those doors for those decisions but the way we've thought about what we do is having a product that we put out is usually based on um a few different things it's based on um, what is what is popular, who is popular, and what has been popular, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that going forward for the art form to actually be relevant, to be creative in a way that is um, broad, or maybe even very like pointed sure is that those decisions i think can be made more like for instance and i've never been a kind of creator of music or creator of art pieces even though i grew up you know my parents were both visual artists so i have this concept and i love dance my mom was a choreographer and a dancer as well as an art teacher and my dad is a creator in, in so many different ways and as you know, you know my brother, but mm-hmm. I've never created pieces like art pieces or performance pieces of political statements or works. And in a way, after that morning where I spent time um, working on what I was going to say and then thinking I was going to kneel and take two knees, I was working on an art piece, kind of, you know, like a performance art piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a way, orchestras and musical groups have such a such power to create, um, and of course, this is the overused word that people don't want us to use anymore, but to curate these like creations, these concerts that make can make us think about things besides make us what we've all been trained to do, which is we just want to feel how beautiful this music is, right? Yeah. That in a way that we can also, the music actually, and this has been throughout all of time that a lot of composers have also known this, that music is also used to um, to provoke thought and to provoke um, specific reactions, and and so orchestras are starting to do that now a little bit more, and and maybe have and it's it becomes something more than just programmatic, as far as like marketing as far as selling tickets, but it becomes something maybe a little bit more important so that it actually resonates with communities. And so that means that you're actually going to have to look at 
even though I haven't heard of this composer, what is this composer's thought? What is this conductor's thought? What is this musician's thought about what's going on in the world? And how can we relate to that? And do we want to relate to that as an institution? And is that, and if people, for instance, there's a, um, you know, I read a good book recently called um, um, All About the Why or something. It's Mm -hmm. a, uh, it's a business book, but it's about leadership. But I think orchestras um, also need to figure out why they're doing things. And if they want to connect, they have to think about what the music says as far as connecting with that as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can't just take the easiest road and say, we're going to put on one, um, you know, one uh, concert a year to say we, we appreciate this thing. If you're going to connect with certain communities or not with others, you know, all these choices are choices that orchestras have to understand what is their identity and is their identity changing? And do they want their identities to change? Because if they don't, then all of this talk about change is all for naught, you know? Yeah. You know, and when you mentioned, you know, that idea of connectivity, it's so interesting. Um, a couple of days ago, I was on a, a panel with uh, Toyin, who I'm sure, you know, you know, uh, Oboe is with the uh, with Imani Wins. And one of the things that she was talking about was how, you know, growing up, um, classical music, this thing that we call classical music was sort of um, seen as a barrier between her connecting with, you know, communities that that she sort of uh, uh, identifies with, you know, as the principal uh, clarinetist um, with the New York Philharmonic. I mean, surely you you've had to uh, you've thought about the idea of, of some of the black and brown folks in the field seeing you as a part of this machine, you know, a part of this system that we're we're trying to uh, tear down. You know, what, what 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 do you say to that? Is it possible to change from the inside? That's a really good question, because um, it goes to the area of. Of uh, there are a couple different layers, a couple different things to talk about. To this point. So the important thing to remember is that if you want and have wanted to be something for your whole life and you spend your whole life practicing and working and trying to become that thing mm-hmm. because you love the music, you love playing the clarinet, you love most of the people involved in that, then yes, you're going to be a part of that system. But it's also like being born in America. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an American. I've, I've got an opportunity being an American. And I've lived what is quote unquote, to some people may be described as the American dream. Sure. And yet that that does not mean that I am not, uh, that I must be okay with everything that America uh, stands for or that everything that has happened to everyone in America within the whole system, being a black American, that that, that does not, you shouldn't all, one shouldn't automatically assume that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happens sometimes when people um, go through that system and are successful of it. But isn't that yeah. supposed to be the point of, of, of trying to change the system is that there will be more people of, that look different and speak different and, and, and believe different things and, and have different ways of seeing the world that also are, can be successful 
within that new system as well. And so it, it's this is this is the thing that I think it shouldn't be a one or or and because then here's the other issue. Speaking of tokenism and this yeah. sort of thing, is that frankly even on um, any kind of um, board or any kind of meeting room or any kind of the fear in a way of becoming a token or becoming called that being called that can prevent in my case people are like well why are you doing that or why are you doing that i imagine people are saying right i'm like wait wouldn't you isn't the whole point that you want more people in that room Mm-hmm. Isn't that whole, that look different or that feel different and have different points of view? Isn't that the whole point of it? So either there's, it's not one or the other. You either want to celebrate that so that more people can celebrate that and then more people can be involved in those decisions and can be involved in those meetings, can be involved in the playing of the music on that stage. That's the, that's the whole point. So yes, it can be strange when... Um, you can sometimes feel like, okay, you may be, you're, you are the um, establishment, but yeah. Okay. Well then, then maybe I can speak to some of those, those folks in those organizations um, to, to talk about or encourage as well, the kind of change that we're talking about. And I'm, I'm trying, and there are lots of other people that are doing it, but you know, the most important thing is that the folks in power are the folks in power. Yeah. So the folks in power have to be the ones to decide to make the changes that will affect everyone else. And, and so, you know, when you're within, within the machine, machine, you can try to encourage that as well and try to use, and this is what you could go back to it. This is what I have felt that that's what I'm trying to do. And many people within the field are, have been trying to do for a very long time, of course. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Very long time long before I ever stepped on the foot of anybody's stage. <laughs> so, and you know, and I know that, and I know, I know them and I, that's, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Yeah. yeah. That, that leads into a question that I had about that very thing, because I looked at a current picture of the New York Philharmonic as a group and I saw you and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't see any other black people in the photo. And if you look at our staff, Garrett, is the only black person in that photo. And over the, over the last couple of years, he's gotten the moniker of classical music, classical music agitator. And I was wondering, you just answered that. I was wondering if you were doing that for the New York Philharmonic, but being the, the uh, principal chair, you get to sort of set the tone for the section. And so I was wondering what sort of leadership you are bringing out. And especially in this time where, you know, COVID's going on, you know, what sort of plans do you have to shape the section and amplify your voice within the, the ensemble? Well, I mean, you know, musically, when you're on stage, you can amplify your voice as much as it is amplified, like as loud as you can play, you know, as far as like, <laughs> I'm going to bring, like if you're principal, <laughs> like that's that's basically how you affect the sound of the orchestra is by playing, trying to play really well. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, as musicians, that's basically it. And, you know, before, basically before this this year or the last few years in or- my orchestra career, um, none of these issues have been priorities for, for the organizations. Right. So, 
you know, I was never asked my opinion about any of these things. I, and I'm doing my job, which is to play clarinet. Right. So I think it's, I mean, I am um, hopeful that, and, and we're all getting really tired, of course, of being on different panels and different committees yeah. and different blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, I was never asked to do anything before. I was never by, I'm talking about by leadership. As right. clarinet as clarinet leadership, that is one small part of the machine. And in a way, you would you'd be surprised how um, the power of the musicians on stage is, is actually feels quite small. You know, you just, you play music. That's what you're supposed to do, right? In these organizations. That the real power comes from the um, artistic leadership in a way. And so if the artistic leadership works with members of the orchestra, all the diverse members of the orchestra, if they have any, <laughs> yeah. or everybody else, or it doesn't even have to be a diverse orchestra. That's what's interesting about this kind of discussion is that you can have an orchestra without any black people in it and still feel the value in doing work that, that furthers um, the mission of equity and the mission, mission uh, of in inclusion for when there are people that join your orchestra yeah. That, yeah. that may look like me. I wanted to um, make a point to sort of touch on the parts of your career um, that uh, take place off the stage, you know. So, you know, as, as we're going through COVID, uh, as we have this conversation, uh, it's early August. Um, lots of orchestras have um, uh, postponed or, or canceled uh, their, their next season. You know, uh, we don't really know what's what's you know, what, what, what we have to look forward to this year or, or the following. Um, how does that idea impact your teaching? I mean, your, your students are obviously, you know, sh surely the, um, the, the, the better of them are, you know, on this path to, you know, doing some of the things that you're doing in the orchestral world. But, you know, in a world where orchestras, you know, may not be back for a while, you know, how, how, do, how does that impact the way that uh, you, you teach your students and you try to, you know, spread this onto the next generation? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's the question that I had to grapple with, especially in in uh, like March 13th, you know, when that, that was basically the last rehearsal and we were all sent home. And I we were still we were still teaching for like a few months after that. And I'll be honest. A lot of the early lessons and discussions. Were about. Um, our psychology, like our our mental state, our mental um, well-being for the students and for myself at the time, discussing how I was feeling and how they were feeling. And it just makes you realize, and I, we started to talk about it, it's like, okay, once again, we need to figure out um, why you want our musician. You know, I mean, I think even before, of course, before crisis hit you, you need to think about that anyway, to go into music as a field. But it's important to reevaluate that when things um, hit the fan, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's kind of what we spend a lot of time doing. And so then, so I basically assigned a lot of my students to play play what they wanted to play, play what they loved to play. Because it did seem strange to be listening to a few of the orchestra excerpts over and over again. Yeah. As soon as like none of the orchestras in the world are playing music. Right. You know? <laughs> right. But that's only because psychologically, I think it was really tough. It was really a tough thing to go through. 
but I also have a pretty open view about what um, being successful as a musician means and that um, you know, driving through orchestra excerpts is really is a, a one part of a lot of different things that you need to know and and think about if you want to be a musician, you know, because that's not the only path for being a successful musician. Um, so it, it's important, especially in this time, to be spreading that message that our duties as musician or responsibilities as, as artists is something a little bit bigger or maybe a lot bigger. And um, maybe that's impractical, but I don't think so. I didn't know I was gonna be in an orchestra when I, when I first started falling in love with music. I didn't know I was gonna get a chance to. And like lots of people um, that you figure out how you're going to express music to the world. And that's like, that's the whole point. Or what are you expressing? Maybe it's not just music. Maybe it's something a little bit greater, a little bit more, um, something that can connect or something that can resonate with vast amounts of people. That's what I was always trying to do when I was young. I had this dream about that, yeah. you know. Wow. Well, um, you know, you touched on, um, you know, what I planned on being my last question for you, but, but, but I'll ask it anyway, you know, as, as it is tradition for many orchestras, you know, um, the season begins with the national anthem. So whenever that happens, um, and you're on stage, I mean, what are your plans? What, what, everyone's going to be looking to you. So what, what, what do you, have you thought about what you're going to do? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I've, I've thought about it every single time I've played the national anthem. Mm. For 20 years, this is not really, this is not okay. new. Okay. You know, this is not new. And I have, it would be disingenuous of me to say that now, because I started this, like, you know, a hash, like a movement or something that now I'm going to like, like not stand up for the national anthem. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to, a part of playing in an orchestra is, is, is part of playing the pro the pieces that are on the program. And I've never once thought I would not play a piece, any piece for whatever reason on stage. So, yeah, I mean, but that, you know, who knows <laughs> if things, <laughs> if things, how bad can, how bad can things get? Maybe I'll just start sitting, but you know, that, that would be like a display that just brings attention. Uh, part of orchestras, as you know, is about not bringing attention to yourself, you know, sure, but sure. with that, what, what would it accomplish? Like, let's, would it be helpful? And that's something actually, that I battle with all the time. What would it be helpful? And in that particular case, I'm not sure it would be helpful. I think there are things that I could do that would be more helpful than that. Sure. Or, or, or maybe you could inspire the entire orchestra to take two knees. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some viola players who haven't been on their knees in a while, you know, older. But <laughs> look, look, there, there, there. To be honest, to call out my orchestra, my orchestra members, there were, there have been a few. Okay. But there have been, there have been other orchestras, young and old, of people that have done it. Okay. And have resonated. So, yeah, I'm. Trust me, I'm waiting for everybody in my orchestra to do it. I'm still waiting, everybody. So I'm not not <laughs> meaning to call out the whole orchestra, but I kind of want to. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take that as a call out. Yeah. <laughs> um, how can uh, how can folks uh, find uh, your your take two knees and uh, and learn more about you? Um, they can they can find it at um, McGill Clarinet Instagram, or you just hashtag take two knees and search on Instagram. 
there's you know like maybe a thousand thousand videos in there you can go on uh, facebook and search hashtag take two knees you see some tons of beautiful beautiful tributes from like tons of different people most of whom i don't know personally and with their own what's interesting is the words behind them most people um like myself um felt the need to do it for whatever for various reasons but all um to kind of raise their voices against racism or racial injustice and of course you know public lynching of people you know right. in america right. frankly but uh, many other issues that we need to to solve so i think it's um that's been pretty pretty um heartwarming for me it's just um that you know no minds can be minds can't don't change just because they want to change right most of the time people change their minds because they feel something because they because their heart changes in some way because it connects with something that they care about you know yeah. so that that's been that's been the most beautiful thing is that um to see how many people do care and so they can change thoughts and by changing the people's lives around them in their by their their hearts being changed about an issue or maybe not changed at all yeah. just you know moved you know yeah. Well, you know, coming up uh, in, in this field of, of so-called classical music where there's so few folks that, you know, look like us, the the few of us that there are in, in these really high positions, you know, it's hard to not, you know, um, you know, put you guys up on a on a pedestal. Um, so with, with all of that being said, you know, getting to sit here and talk with you um, is really exciting for me. I, I really, really appreciate your um, taking the time. Obviously, me and so many other black classical musicians have always looked up to you. So, you know, th thanks for being on trip. And thanks uh, so much for all the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And bravo to your program and your success. I, I remember we met years ago. And yep. this is this is amazing that what you're doing and bravo to you both. A huge thank you again to Anthony McGill. You know, when we got that that interview request, you know, from his manager, I was I was so excited that you know th this was a show that was on their radar and he wanted to be on. So um, it's it, it's it's an honor for me. It, it was it was really an honor. It was great to get back in touch with her too. I've worked with her a couple times when we had stations down in South Florida, and she was representing a band. She probably still does uh, called Tiempo Libre. And this is and Allison. Yeah, Van Van Etten. Yeah, of uh, Van Etten. Shout out to Allison Van Etten. And um, she said, uh, you know, they she turned me on to Tiempo Libre, which was a, a group from uh, Cuba that were classically trained, and they brought that into their, you know, more like street music, yeah. dance music. 
Yeah. Um, before we get into the triloquy, you know, one thing I wanted to underscore about the conversation uh, with Anthony is when he talked about, you know, no one ever asked him to be a part of these, you know, equity initiatives or, you know, his opinion on race and classical music. And I feel like, you know, so many folks in the field see Anthony as a part of this machine, you know, just an anomaly, not 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 an example of right. what is possible, but an example of what just happens to happen sometimes, you a know, fluke. but but he, um, you know, it, is, is really engaging these things in, in a way that I respect. So, you know, um, we're, we're all, you know, on this journey in, in, uh, in the way we can be. And I think, um, you know, with this take two knees, you know, and, 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 and I, sh- I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, there, there are even people who, you know, have things to say about that, you know, that the image of being on two knees, you know, even from the, from the idea of begging for this sort of, um, how, how can I say that this equity and all that stuff? But, you know, a, a, as we've seen, you know, a, as there's always, you know, a way to critique and, and sort of, you know, uh, unpack certain things, which I think is healthy. Um, obviously, you know, what Anthony has done has had a huge impact. So um, I, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to, you know, seeing other folks um, in, in prominent positions in the field uh, really doing what they can to um, take a stance against, you know, um, the racism that that is a uh, rampant in classical music and how we can make um, really big change. I will say I, I, I will be uh, tuned in if I can be uh, when the Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic comes back with the national anthem because, you know, that's how a lot of orchestras sure. open their season. Sure. Well, we'll see what we'll see what the orchestra does. It would be exciting to see a whole orchestra taking a knee, wouldn't it? Mm. Mm. Oh, except for the cellists. Oh, yeah. I mean, that it's, it's kind of hard to play the bassoon on a knee, too. A, a few of those instruments, but... <laughs> yeah, that's probably why you don't have cellists in the marching band. I suppose. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into the triloquy. I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Okay, what you got uh, for this week? You wouldn't tell me beforehand. So. You, are, you are our podcast resident Joe Budden expert, right? Okay, here we go. Is this a, a Joe Budden so triloquy? My, this is my question to you. Is Joe Budden a bully? I would no. I would definitely not say. And shout out to Joe Budden, you okay. know, number one podcast. Yeah, I don't do you, think I wouldn't call him a bully at all. Okay. Do you know the name Logic? Yes, I definitely know the name Logic. Do you know? Do you know the beef that they've been having? Yes, I'm very long. familiar. This is very interesting for you to be bringing this okay, in. Okay. So this is this is my question to you. Logic recently released an album. Budden was saying that he is probably the worst rapper ever and he should be retiring and all that. <laughs> but, and, and, then, and, 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 and just and just so we're making sure we're not leaving anybody behind for anyone who does not know, Joe Button um, is a rapper who came out early 2000s. Um, I respect him because, you know, like me, he sort of shifted into media, you know, uh, makes his living uh, with interviews, has this phenomenal uh, hip hop and pop culture podcast called the Joe Button Podcast. So, again, shout out to Joe Button, Rory Mall, um, Parks and everyone, uh, Savon, uh, Alex from uh, they work on that. They also have the Need to Know podcast, mm-hmm. which I was on, you know, last sure. year. So. 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 Yeah. So if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, we're talking about some hip hop stuff here that <laughs> that this got brought in that I'm that I'm trying to get it. My hands around here. Okay, so last month, uh, Button discussed his uh, Logic's recent retirement announcement, saying he should have done it a long time ago. Now, um, Logic came back in a different interview and said, you know, he didn't hear that and he didn't hear Joe's later apology Mm -hmm. for it. He said he was just out of Twitter jail, wasn't reading the room. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And Logic's like, you know, I don't know anything about that, but there have been times where his words made me want to kill myself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 
what kind of weight does that carry? I mean, for, like for you and I, if somebody did something drastic over something was said, how would you react? Well, first and foremost, I, I think I need to acknowledge that as someone who really is a supporter and a listener to Joe Button and, and everything he does, you know, he, he often talks about his own um, mental health struggles, sure. how, how suicide is, is something that, that he has struggled with and, you know, all of these different things. So he very much understands the, the conversation and the issue of, of mental health, especially in the black community. Now, with that being said, he um, has, has definitely done his part in um, apologizing. And, you know, I, and, and I think he and Logic have even linked um, uh, at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Now, as that applies to us, you know, you're, you're, you're asking, you know, that's why I'm so careful about everything I say. You know, how did I how did I begin the accidentals a couple of movements ago uh, in this opus? You know, making sure that I cover my bases about a, a manscaping joke as it applies to to women and, and dating and all that, because I don't want to be you know, that, 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 that person. And, and, and it's important to me to, you know, look at every corner of everything I say and, and, and make that, sure not, not that I'm walking on eggshells, but just no. making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm walking what I talk and making sure that I'm as equitable and, and as, you know, inclusive as I can be, not only in my action and my work, but in my speech. But it was the triloquy. Yeah, sure. It was the, tr so people know that that's the saltier section. All right. Well, right. A saltier. Now, mm, okay. here's my, here's my, here's my, here's my follow-up to it. Uh, Logic is retiring and he said yeah. that he's going over to Twitch. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't that like a video game? Sort yeah, of. yeah, but a lot of people are starting to do music over there, like live concerts, oh, virtual. And, yeah. Okay, okay, that part I didn't know about because I'm thinking those video gamers are a lot harsher than Joe Budden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to get his lunch eaten over there, right? Yeah, I, well, I mean, you you never know that the internet can the internet can be gangster as well. You know, the, the, the internet has different yeah. communities and different neighborhoods. <laughs> okay, so that you know, like I said, I've tried to listen to Joe Budden, and you know, a lot of times I just don't know what they're talking about and it's difficult for me to feel like there's something there for me so I move on and I don't begrudge anybody that listens to it and so I just wanted to make sure that um, there wasn't something in this beef between Logic and Joe Button that I was missing. So. Well, I appreciate your um, bringing that in. You know, Joe Button, one of my favorite composers, one of my favorite podcast composers, the Pod Father, he calls himself. Um, yeah, shout, shout out to him. You know, so and what much do you think about Logic? What I think about Logic, um, it's he he's he's fine. I mean, not one of my favorite rappers or anything, but he 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 has some some tunes out there. Logic actually made an appearance on um, Rick and Morty, if you remember. Um, do you remember the episode where? Um, and shout out to everyone who listens, uh, who watches Rick and Morty, phenomenal show. Do you remember where um, they do the Avengers? Is it the Avengers or two? Like where where they do like the Saw version of of these uh, obstacles that that uh, that uh, Rick drunkenly put together. Um, noob Noob is in this uh, episode. <laughs> Do you remember? You know, I'm having a hard time. But anyway, go ahead. Well, well, there is an episode of of uh, Rick and Morty where Logic throws a concert at the very end. So I'll, I'll see if I can after we get off the mics here. I'll I'll show that to you. But right. um, you know, so it, it's interesting that you bring in bring in that triloquy. You know about. Um, you know, being careful what you say and the power of words. So um, a few opuses back, we, um, you know, explored um, a violinist 
uh, Louis Farrakhan and his relationship with the Gateways Festival and, and black classical music and all sorts of things. And, you know, and, and that tie with uh, the Nick Cannon situation that I think we covered a, a couple opuses ago, you know, have opened up so many uh, conversations, a lot of angry emails, a lot of very supportive emails. Um, so as I promise, you know, to, to reach out to, you know, folks in my communities um, who identify as Jewish, you know, I, I made a point to schedule a time with Joshua Wallerstein, you know, a previous uh, Triloquy guest. I've been a guest on his Sticky Notes podcast. We had um, uh, about an hour and a half, uh, really great uh, conversation. And um, and with his permission, again, um, uh, I wanted to share, um, you know, one of the big things we talked about, um, how perspective can really define um, reality for people. So mm-hmm. what basically what I told him in a nutshell was growing up in Memphis, okay, a predominantly black city, um, it did have a very pronounced Jewish community that, from my perspective, was not only very insular, but very uh, rich and very privileged. You know, their own schools, their own community centers, you know, they um, any, anyone you know who was Jewish, you know, lived in, in this part of town, you know, mm. one, one of the money parts of town. So I just did not view Jewish people as um, a marginalized people. Now, you know, becoming educated and, and talking with John. Joshua Wallerstown uh, about the, you know, 2000 um, years oppression of, of Jewish people, you know, it, it's something to, um, to, to really consider. And I think for black folks to understand now, with that being said, um, I think Josh would feel comfortable with me sharing that, you know, he agrees that um, by and large, um, Jewish people um, in the United States are in a better situation than most folks, certainly black people, and that there need to be more Jewish people standing in solidarity when it comes to Black Lives Matter and mm. and, and, and all of, the, of these different equitable practices. So, you know, it, it, it's it's a very, um, um, you know, delicate conversation because you don't want to get into, you know, playing um, uh, oppression police, right? Sure. You know, so. Sure. Um, um, but um, I, I just wanted to make sure I, I shared that. And, and I'm still evolving. You know, if I'm going to be completely trill, you know, can be be a thousand percent honest right now i have to say that you know there is no plight in the united states you know with the exception of what was done to the indigenous people greater than you know the plight of black people not only were we stripped of everything but we built the foundation we built the infrastructure for a country that we still are not benefiting from you know so i i really hope that you know those of us you know, who work at the intersection of so many different things, gender equity, you know, anti-racist work. We really need to focus on, in my opinion, who is that common oppressor? Who, who and what are we actually fighting against? Do you have any idea, you know, when it comes to, you know, um, uh, Scott, gender rights, um, anti-Semitism and anti-racism, you know, folks who uh, feel a way about folks from the Middle East, you know, who do you think is that common enemy among all of those marginalized communities? See you next time. (laughs) 